You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles hunting podcast brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and on this podcast, you will find tons of relevant information that will help you become more successful in the field. You'll hear product information directly from the manufacturer and success stories from guys and gals just like you. Sit back, relax, and pour a stiff drink. This episode of the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast starts right now. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras. Uh, if you want to save $20 on your next Exodus Trail Camera purchase, enter the discount code nine fingers that's the number nine followed by the word fingers now on today's podcast we are joined by returning guest brett smith and man this is like a podcast on cocaine and coffee because we cover a lot and we cover it really fast we talk about how he's been successful in the past handful of years on identifying buck beds accessing those locations whether it's a, a specific buck bed or if it is like a bet a buck bedroom so to speak he follows the signs does a lot of good scouting we talk about a recent trip to south dakota we talk about his trip to missouri illinois in his home state of wisconsin and how in the past uh, season he's had some really good encounters using the the principles of i guess buck bed hunting and uh being a mobile a mobile hunter so it's a really really cool podcast and uh hopefully you guys enjoy it uh i know a lot of you do love the the buck bed talk and the mobile talk i even voice uh, a little bit of my opinion about uh, the terrain that i hunt and the importance that I give uh, buck bed, so uh, stay tuned for that. But before we get into today's podcast, uh, Exodus Trail Cameras, right? Um, I've been with, with a, this company for several years now. I have yet to have one of their cameras malfunction on me, 
and uh, I'll be honest it's a really good company right and run by really good people the customer service is outstanding if you have a question you can call them they will answer and on top of all of that their products work their cameras do good things great things and you don't really need to worry about them I know in the past I've had cameras where I've put them out and in the back of my mind I'm like hey man I uh, I don't know if this is gonna work you know it gets too cold they shut off or something like that but not Exodus um, go go to their website exodusoutdoorgear.com and check out all the benefits that their camera offers the five-year warranty all of the good things and uh, don't forget to enter the discount code nine fingers when you purchase your camera that's the number nine followed by the word fingers and you'll save twenty dollars off of your purchase so I've hoard out I've explained what this product or what this pod, what this podcast is about and let's just get into it Brett Smith ladies and gentlemen here we go in three two one all right, returning guest, Mr. Brett Smith. What's up, man? Not too much. We're getting a big snowstorm up this way. Just, just waiting for that to clear out and hopefully soon enough get out and do a little bit of shed hunting. How about you, man? What's new? Yeah, dude, we got hammered. We got hammered to, uh, over last night and today. Uh, let's see, we got about eight plus inches of snow, uh, about a quarter inch of ice, and then about another inch of snow on top of that. So, yeah, that's, that's kind of what we're looking at up here, too. It's it's disgusting outside right now, and the wind's blowing, and, um, you know, and you mentioned shed hunting, right? Yep, absolutely. I love shed hunting. I found a really good side um, this uh, this weekend off of a buck that I have history with uh, as far as trail camera pictures are concerned, but I don't, like, everybody wants the snow to melt. I actually because I won't be shed hunting for a handful of weeks sure. yet. I want the snow to stay so it congregates them on the main food sources like the egg fields. And Definitely. that way, as the snow starts to melt uh, come late February, early March, it's more of a concentrated uh, environment to find sheds in. And I think, for like historically speaking, I don't know about you, but historically speaking, that's when I find the most sheds throughout the year. That definitely makes a lot of sense having a game plan like that. And like you said, if you can definitely key in on maybe, you know, like I said, a farmer left a bean field or a cornfield up. I mean, if that can congregate the deer, that's that's definitely a good plan, I would say. What uh, do you find many sheds? Honestly, living in Wisconsin, it's pretty sparse. Um, me and some buddies past couple of years, we've uh, we've been taking trips. We did one down towards Iowa. Um kind of in the Dubuque area, but actually this year we're going to be going to kind of uh, one of our hot spots in Missouri and then also in Illinois a little bit. So we're, we have that planned um, about a month from now. Nice. Is that a private farms, public ground? Um, we got some permission on some farms, so um, we have a little bit of both. It's kind of a, kind of a mix. Gotcha. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. Well, today we're going to talk about a variety of different things. But the first thing that I want to talk about is you found some success over the past couple of years with hunting specific buck beds. And I kind of want to talk to, uh, about that a little bit uh, because you're from Wisconsin, you know, yep. the, the state where in fault kind of 
perfected, refined and perfected the the hunting buck beds type movement. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. And then I'm from the farm ground ridge country, you know, the the rolling hills, the long fingers leading up into the the, uh, ag fields type country and you also hunt something similar to that in missouri and uh is is your farm in illinois kind of like that as well um the place that i hunt in illinois it's it's got similar topography to what you would see in uh in in missouri for the most part missouri and even iowa where you're at too it's it's similar gotcha so what i want to talk about a little bit is this this locating buck beds because i feel like and i might get crucified for saying this Sure. And I think a lot of it has to do with the terrain that you hunt. But I feel that hunting buck beds is kind of overrated a little bit. Okay. In in my specific uh I don't know how do how do I put this? My the 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 terrain that I hunt. Sure. And, and here's why I say that. Because for me I feel that the deer aren't using those same exact beds enough to where I can pattern them and sneak in on them and get them, you know, get them killed. Definitely. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Like I said, when you bring up the topography thing, that's one thing I've noticed in hunting, um, you know, different states. Um, in Missouri, it's not so much buck beds, it's buck bedding areas, you know, vantage points, um, things like that. Whereas in Wisconsin where I'm at, I mean, you're dealing with cattail marshes and thickets. You can literally go in and you're in your, you know, off season scouting and you can find these beds. Um, and a lot of times they're using them on a certain win and you know, you, you, you kind of put all your cards, you know, you know, you push all your cards in and you go for it one day eventually. And that's just kind of how it works out. You kind of hope that they're in there for the win that you planned on. And, that, and that's kind of how it goes, at least in Wisconsin. But with, with the topography, like you said, it's kind of another ball game. Now on on these uh, Wisconsin marshland cattail type hunts, talk to me a little bit about that, a, a little bit more in depth. Because from my understanding, it's just high ground. They find high ground, and and by right. by process of elimination, it's the only places that they can bed. Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, one of my spots that I'm thinking of right now. Um, on public land, real large cattail marsh, you know, something similar as to what you would see in a Danian fault video. Um, you, you know, you, you go through these marshes and there's high spots, there's little islands. Um, and a lot of times on these islands, there, there, you know, there's, there's different buck beds. Um, not, and sometimes it doesn't even have to be an island. I mean, it can be, you know, the single tree out there. A lot of times those are a little bit of, of I guess you call them magnets for me. If I'm out there doing my scouting and I see a random tree out in the, in the cattail marsh, I mean, that's something I'm going to go look at, you know, check it for, for hair and all these other things and hopefully find some rubs in it. Um, you know, maybe some, some entrance and exit rubs coming, you know, to and from certain directions and things like that. And that's kind of how I go about narrowing those down. Um, and it doesn't have to be a cattail marsh, just a lot of the thickets that we have, um, you know, these, these just brushy thickets and things like that. I've, I've definitely absolutely found them in, in that stuff too. Gotcha. Okay. So that's Wisconsin. Yep. Now you still take some of those principles wherever, wherever you go and hunt, like in Missouri and uh, Illinois, there's different, it's different terrain, but how are you relating those same principles to the different terrain? Um, it takes a little bit of, uh, experience hunting those areas, you know, more so picking out, um, you're, you're obviously going to be looking for buck sign. You're going to be looking for scrapes. You're going to be looking for rubs and things like that. 
um, and remember those spots year to year. The thing I think I've picked up on a little bit more in hill country is that they're using these points of ridges and things like that um, as vantage points. So, um, like I said, I might not, I mean, you can probably find a bed that a buck has bedded in, in hill country. I'm not, you know, that's, that's definitely the case, but whether he's going to keep using that bed, um, uh, it's, it's a little bit more of a toss up. I mean, it all comes down to just finding buck sign and almost in, in hill country, finding, you know, finding a place where that buck, he almost feels like he's bulletproof. I mean, he feels like nothing's going to sneak up on him without him catching it first. So uh, like I said, just finding the deer sign, finding the buck sign and, and those are the kind of areas that I lean towards um, a little bit more is, like I said, those points on ridges and, and vantage points ultimately for, for hill country. Now, when you say vantage point, you're you're putting yourself in the deer's point of view, right? Absolutely. All right. And just to reiterate, a lot of the listeners probably through other podcasts or hearing guests on this podcast or myself talk about, you know, they bed at the end of a ridge point, right? Um, not at the top, but not towards the bottom, right? They, they're betting somewhere on that top third. Top third, yep. Top yep. third. Wind's blowing over top of the ridge. Yep. And so they can scent check everything above them, and they can see or put themselves in a, I don't know, like they can see uh, where they can't smell, mm-hmm. right? Right. So when... Okay, and I'll throw my two cents in, and I think it's uh, a lot. This is kind of going back to my original original state statement here, yep. is like on the farm that I hunt. I, I'm looking at a map right now, and I'm going to count the points of the ridge between the food source, the main food source, and these different points that they could that I have found beds on. So there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. 10 11 12 so there's 12 areas that a buck could potentially be bedded on different wind directions right all on one ridge you're saying well no i'm saying there's 12 different ridge ridge okay gotcha gotcha on this one farm right so obviously um, it's, and the way my farm l- lays is the ridges go north, south, and, and some of them go like, uh, they start high on the south and drop down to the north and then sure. vice versa where they, they're at the north and drop down. And what I've found over the years, cause I've played around with hunting, you know, going in, in the mornings and doing some, some quote unquote buck bed hunting right. is I've never even got busted doing it so it tells me that the deer have multiple bedding areas for even the slightest different wind change and i, mm-hmm. and I don't know what your uh, thoughts are on this but even if it's a south wind versus a south southwest wind or a south sure. southeast wind or a southeast or a southwest wind they could be bedding on a completely different ridge based off of even the slightest uh, adjustment in the wind what have you have you seen anything like that or thoughts on that? As far as the wind goes, I mean, I can't necessarily say that I'm going to see a, a buck betting, you know, different on a south-southeast than what he would be on a straight south. What I can um, bring to that part of the conversation is, you know, in hill country, I 100% believe that they're absolutely always using the wind to an advantage on those ridgetops nope. in some some way, shape, or form. 
sometimes I think in the thick areas of Wisconsin, I mean, a lot of times a deer wants to trust his nose, but I think if they're in a honey hole that they've been safe numerous times before, they don't necessarily have to have that wind so perfect that, um, you know, a south southeast versus a south is going to make them change. If, if they've been to that area numerous times and they've never correlated it with any, you know, bad experiences, I think they're, if they feel safe there, they're going to go back. Whereas I have, I mean, whether it's hunting South Dakota this year or Missouri, I, I truly do believe that, you know, the wind and, and buck bedding does play a little bit more of a factor in those areas. But that's just based off my experience. So somebody might think, you know, the complete opposite. But that's that's kind of what I picked up on. Right, right. And and you've been doing this, uh, you've been doing this for about five years now. Yep. Five years. Yeah. And yep. you, so you I've, found I've success. Been, doing it. definitely yeah. definitely yeah i mean it takes a little bit of an adjustment learning how to hunt the topography can absolutely be you know a learning process but um with that being said you kind of learn what topography features are kind of maybe good transition points based off of those those bedding you know ridges and stuff like that and you, you figure it out after some time so right so let me let me ask you this when you because i think what we've done is to all the new hunters uh the, the people who want to be a buck bed hunter or a better run and gun hunter, better mobile hunter. Um, I think we've just went over their head. So now what I want to do is kind of, you know, bring it back down and talk about some of the failures that maybe we've, because for me, I, I failed a lot when I, when I started going mobile, right. And started hunting, sure. uh, like downwind of bedding areas or uh, trying to go in on a specific buck. So why don't you share some of your, uh, past experiences from the failure department about, you know, going in on a specific deer or on, you know, into a bedroom of sorts and, and getting busted or having the deer never show up and then maybe realizing what you did wrong and, and how you changed it. Um, I would definitely, I mean, I'm thinking of, of, of access routes. The first thing that's kind of coming to mind. I mean, sometimes you, you put, you put all your, you know, eggs in one basket and you go for it. You know, let's talk Wisconsin for a bit. You know, you got these buck beds and you know, he's been consistently on camera. He's showing up on this Southwest wind or whatever. So I think he's using this bed, um, you know, on, on a certain wind and you go in there and you get completely skunked. You don't see anything or whatever the case is. Maybe you screwed up access. I can't think of an exact time off the top of my head. Um, but that, I mean, I think access or, or just because he's in that bed, um, doesn't mean that he didn't circle around and get, you know, downwind to you at some point. Um, and once you have a failed hunt like that, it really forces you to, to go back and, you know, go through every step and think, you know, why didn't this deer show up? Because I've had it where they've been pretty consistent, um, on certain wins. I've ha I have cameras, you know, kind of on what I would assume are their exit trails, you know, 50 to 75 yards away from these beds and they're showing up same wind, same wind, same wind. You go in there and you don't see them. So you wonder if maybe they, they caught you on the entrance or, you know, they circled around you and you just, you're, you're kind of, you're forced to go back and recount things and, 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 you know, really look at things closely, I guess. Yeah. And that's the thing. You never know what they are doing exactly until you see them doing exactly what they're doing. And it, sometimes that's the, that comes down to the moment of the truth right there. Yeah. And that's when you get your opportunity. Exactly. Right. And then, and then you put those, you know, pieces to the puzzle, um, together at the end and, and then it makes sense. But that story probably ends there if you killed the buck. So right. it's always, it's always good to use those experiences for, for, you know, the future, but definitely I know what you're saying. Right now, 
it's this is crazy because I always used to think that you know when I first started becoming a mobile hunter, everybody tells me you know the deer are using their nose to their uh, advantage. They're either walking into it or it's quartered somehow to where they're using the terrain to um, you know uh, catch scent ahead of them or behind them or you know they're using their nose they're using their nose right and i tell you what i've seen so many examples of the deer walking with the wind to their back Mm -hmm. and not into the and not using it into their you know to their advantage right it's almost to the point where i honestly don't know if i have a theory or because I've seen so many different things as far as how deer enter a bedding area or how they enter a food source. Because every time I can tell you one example, I can tell you, I can show you another example of how that, that theory is completely debunked. Yeah, absolutely. I, I know exactly what you're saying. I mean, I've killed deer with, with, you know, the wind coming over their back and they're not using it, you know, at all. And I think honestly, one correlation that I, I, I would throw out there, I think that could be a possibility is pressure. Um, if yeah. those deer, um, feel the need or, you know, they're, they're, they're getting pressured quite a bit. They're going to feel the need, I think, to use their nose a lot more if they're in a place where let's say you, it's your sanctuary, it's your honey hole, you're saving it for November five, six, seven, and you don't go in there. Well, the deer aren't going to be expecting anything. So they're probably going to be walking around a little bit more leisurely and, and not quite as worried about it. So that's that's one correlation, at least, that comes to my mind that, that could make a difference, I guess. But other than that, I, I, I know what you're saying. Yeah. Like I said, I've, I've killed deer with wind coming over their back. It doesn't make sense. You know, we, we sometimes overanalyze it. You think, well, the deer shouldn't be doing that, but here he is doing it, you know? Right. I wonder if there's a time of year, right, where obviously the rut changes everything and you see sure. deer doing dumb shit all the time. But I wonder if there's a time of year where they just don't they're, they're not as on point as they are right i mean in the summertime when they're out in the fields you know you're driving down the road you see a big buck eating in a bean field and <laughs> he looks up at you and then he puts his head back down and continues eating and then right. you do that same exact thing in october and he's gone you right know what i mean i wonder if that testosterone boost that they get changes how i guess spooky they are i could see it going both ways because as that testosterone rises you're getting closer to the rut and maybe they're going to start using their nose more because they're trying to find does but at the same time maybe they get careless and and aren't using it as much you know maybe they got their eye on the prize and they're not using it so it could go both ways i think right right that's that that's something i think about a lot actually so definitely all right so other than access right what are some what are some other failures that you've had in this learning experience of, you know, hunting specific deer or hunting buck beds? Getting too close or too, or staying, you know, too, too far back. Sometimes, um, you're so afraid, especially hunting these, these beds. Um, you're, you're so afraid to go in there and bump anything that you end up just taking yourself completely out of the game and not getting close enough. Um, and some, some other times, oh, I'm going to go back to that quick. I mean, sometimes it's okay to jump a doe and a small buck on your way into that spot so you can get a little bit closer. You know, maybe those were just satellite beds and hopefully, hopefully you didn't spook those deer bad enough to where they blow out the entire place. Maybe they just heard something and they trotted off. 
Um, but, you know, on the complete other side of the spectrum, maybe getting in too close, I mean, and, and blowing it once again before the hunt even starts. Um, that's something you really got to keep in mind in this whole running gun thing. I mean, you're not going to a preset stand. You got to be able to get in there and be absolutely dead silent. You got to have the right equipment, you know, your equipment all organized in a certain way so that you can get in there. Um, the, the, those are two things that come to my mind, either, you know, taking yourself out of the game by getting too close and busting it out bad or just keeping yourself out of the game by not getting aggressive enough. You know, right. at some point, at some point you got to swing for the fences. So if you got all the odds in your favor, the wind direction, and you think he's in there, you got to kind of calculate it and, uh, and decide what you're going to do from there. How do you find that perfect balance though? Right? Because something tells you to go further and something, sometimes that same thing tells you, okay, maybe, maybe I've gone too far. This is, I need to, I need to hold up here as a, as opposed to going in f- further. I think after you do it enough, it almost becomes an instinct. All of a sudden you get a little bit closer and you, you're really, you're, you're walking as slow as you possibly can and you're taking in everything and you're looking and you're seeing sign and also more sign, more sign, more sign. And you, after, after so many experiences of doing it, you start thinking, all right, I gotta be close. I gotta be close. You start looking around, picking your tree, get it on the right side of the trails, so, you know, so he doesn't cross your path or anything like that. I think the biggest thing is having the experiences going in there and failing. I mean, that's the only way you're really going to learn going in there and failing. And, and I mean, that's, that's, that's probably the biggest thing I think. Yeah. Do you feel that, you know, cause you mentioned sign right there, you know, the, the closer you get to a quote unquote buck bedding area, the mm-hmm. more sign a person might see. Absolutely. I would say so. I mean, especially um, in, in this case, this year I killed my Missouri buck. It, it was on the sign. It was on the hot sign. He was coming out of this 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 bottom um, and coming up this uh, this ridge point. Um, and he was, you know, I was in the sign. Same thing. I think you could definitely relate it to a lot more to the Wisconsin hunting. Um, once you're getting, you know, especially if you have these these bucks, you know, buck beds pre-scouted. Um, you know kind of where they are for one and how far to probably keep your distance if you can get within, you know, if you're getting really, really ballsy with it, 70 to 100 yards. I mean, if you, if you can make it work and who knows, depending on the situation, um, maybe even closer. So I guess it all depends. But, yeah, once, you, once you're seeing sign in my neck of the woods, at least in the Wisconsin area, um, especially if you know there's a buck bed there and you see fresh sign, I mean, get ready to post up is what I would say. Right, right. And so once you find this sign or let's say you find the sign, but you're, you may not know where the buck specifically is betting within all this sign. How are you making the decision of which side of the sign that you need to set up on? I, it's hard to say just because every situation is different. The the things that that are going through my head right now, as you say that is literally taking the least amount of steps that I possibly can so that I'm eliminating an opportunity for that deer to cross my path at any point using my eyes more than anything as far as I can see picking out trees um trying to just look for for certain you know maybe padded down trails and then thinking in my head okay the wind's coming this way I need to be on this side of this trail and trying to get to that tree that you've picked in the least amount of steps whether it means you go back down your back trail and loop around it's 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 something that's definitely crossed my mind right now is just trying to keep your scent trail away from anywhere that you think his is going to cross and if he were to cross it hopefully he's dead by that point you know what i'm saying yeah so that's a tactic that i kind of use sometimes is 
my shooting lane or where I think this deer, this deer might actually come through is right. If right where I walk to get into my stand, if that deer crosses my path, there's a chance it's going to bust me. Right. So I run the risk of a doe coming through and catching my ground scent or a, or even my stand scent. Right. But if the shooter that I'm after comes through, I have a shot at it before it catches my ground scent. Right. So, um, that's how aggressive I play that access route, but the wind has to match that. Right. I mean, I'm not, I'm not dumb and I'm not having my, my wind blow in straight into the, the bedding area or where I think this buck is coming from, but I do play it where I'm walk. I try to walk into the stand with my face in the wind as much as humanly possible. And then at some point almost make like a 90 degree turn into the stand to where then that wind is at that quartering angle again. Sure. Maybe, maybe you half moon it around your stand and you get to a point where you think this is like the hot part of the trail and this is maybe where you'd want them to stop. Um, yeah, I know, I know what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. So with, with this learning that, you know, that's kind of taken place, any other failures or, you know, or takeaways that you could share with a a guy who's interested in this method, um, that, you know, to, to cut that learning curve down a little bit because they've listened to you say, Hey man, you know, cause you've talked about access. You've talked about a little bit of the, about the wind. Is there anything else from a failure standpoint? Nothing that really is, is, you know, coming off the top of my head. The main thing that I could, I would say is how consistently I found over the past couple of years that deer were using bucks were absolutely using the wind for bedding areas in hill country. Um, it was, it was something where if you knew there was a good bedding area, um, you knew how to, how to play it based off of the wind. And it was almost a guarantee at, at least in comparison to hunting in Wisconsin. A, a lot of times you think they're going to use it on a certain, a bed on a certain wind, but if they feel safe and they have no prior, you know, bad experiences in that spot, I think you're going to catch them going to that that bed, um, you know, maybe on a couple different wins. Whereas, like I said, if if I had to, you know, say, all right, this bed's here, it would make perfect sense for this buck to be here on northwest winds in hill country. A lot of times he would have been there on that northwest wind. Um, so, like I said, hill country, I definitely think they're using the wind to their advantage almost all the time uh, when bedding. Right. Okay. So then, whew, like there's so many different ways a, a guy could go. Uh, is there, is there a strategy now that you, you start off with? Um, and then if the buck's not there, you kind of go, okay, well I've crossed this off my list. Now I need to try this. And now I cross this off my list and I, and I need to try this. And now I, you know, you go through kind of, a a certain set of steps to get to the perfect stand or is it the same kind of method every time? Oh man. I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, like I said, sometimes maybe you keep yourself out of the game by staying a little bit too far back and then you decide to push a little bit, you know, farther in. And maybe if you're not having luck from that, that, you know, that stand location, um, maybe you're completely switching up access. I mean, there's just so many different ways you could look at that. Um, that's kind of a hard one to say, I guess. Yeah. Okay, so when 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 you did fail, right? Let's say you went in and you got busted. 
or yep. you went in and you didn't see any deer or maybe on the access route in you got busted or something happened and you set up wrong or I don't know. What was the first thing that you did after that to try to, you know, recorrect? The one thing I would say is I guess if it, it depends what I busted on my way. And if I'm if I'm going in and I'm busting satellite bucks and satellite does and stuff like that, um, I'm okay. You don't you never want to bust here, but I'm okay with if if I get a good eye on what I busted, keep on you know keep on going with my original plan. Um, otherwise, hopefully you, you know the property well enough at that point where if you bust a deer, you got a, you got a good second option that you think those deer, um, you know, they might be using this certain spot since you blew them out of, out of the first one. But like I said, if if I'm going in and I'm I'm bumping, you know, I don't know, scrapper six pointers and and does, I'm not I'm not giving up on my game plan at all. A lot of guys would 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 put their head down and say, man, I blew it, but. For one, if those deer, I mean, how many times have we spooked deer and you, you, those deer never really knew what you were for sure. Right. Um, so I guess to a beginner guy, they'd go in there and they would think, man, I blew it. But if, if you, you know, you're still a little bit away from where you think he's betting, there's a good chance he's still there. You never know. Right. Okay. So when did you start becoming what you would consider successful? Honestly, the turning point, um, it, it all had to do with, when I became mobile for sure. Um, but in this past year, I mean, I was, I was fortunate enough to go to Missouri twice, South Dakota twice and Illinois once. And I had encounters, if not shot opportunities every single time. So like I said, I, 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 I'd rewind it all the way back to when it, you know, when I became mobile. Um, and it, that just allows you to get so much closer, um, to those beds, those bedding areas, um, and all that bedding sign. I would definitely correlate it to that. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So what, what was special about this year? One of my buddies would tell me I had a horseshoe up, you know, where, <laughs> honestly, <laughs> um, it, it was it, like I said, it almost becomes an instinct after you do it uh, a good amount of times. I mean, hill country, I'm not going to pretend that I'm a pro at all. I mean, that's, that's tough to hunt hill country. Um, but after doing it and getting out there and honestly being motivated and having the grit to be out there, do the extra scouting um, to the point where you you have numerous backup plans if, if you know, plan A and B didn't work. Um, learning properties uh, and just getting out there and, and reading sign and, and learning from it. I mean, that's the biggest thing. It's, it's no, everybody wants a secret answer as to how, 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 how. I mean, a lot of times it's just getting out there and absolutely learning your property. And sure, a lot of that can be done. Um, out of season now, you know, in the winter when you, when you have, you know, tracks and stuff like that, but sometimes you're going to have to go in there and you're going to have to figure it out during season also. I mean, a lot of things change that time of year and sometimes you learn, you know, well, well on the, on the stand. So it's kind of one of those things, I guess. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about, uh, this year specifically yep. then, yep. um, where did your season start off in Missouri or up in Wisconsin? We, we, neither. We actually, I found out about South Dakota's early season this year, open September 1st. So me and a buddy went out there fully expecting to go out there and run and gun. That's what we know. So that's what we went out there to do. Come to find out, we found ourselves in uh, kind of hill country, um, kind of badlands type stuff that you, that you see out that way with cedar thickets. Uh, I, the first two nights I found myself putting deer stands <laughs> two, three feet up in a, in a cedar tree. I would try and trim it out. Well, the whole thing ended up turning into a spot and stock hunt. I actually did hit a, 
hit a buck after a 500-yard stalk. I got on my hands and knees, um, and I, I must have just clipped below his heart. It was one of those things and just wasn't a fatal shot. So I, I did start in South Dakota. Okay. So you, um, I've, I'm actually looking at going to South Dakota this year for – uh, for potentially a, one of those hunts where you could run into a mule deer, you could run into a whitetail. And, and that's that's exactly what we did this year because with that, that archery, um, it, it is a draw tag, but the, they call it a draw, but the, they literally just send you the license in the mail about a week after you apply. And yeah, it's it, the, that tag at least was good for either. If you bumped into a muley, you could shoot the muley um, or a whitetail. Gotcha. Just, just for my own knowledge, when does that South Dakota uh, draw happen? When do you... Oh. It, it's it's not yet. Um, it's okay. got to be. Well, the, the thing is, if you want to go and it's 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 if you buy that tag, and I'm trying to think, it's a statewide tag that you can you can go buy that uh, two weeks before the season. There, uh, there's I don't think there's a limited amount of those at least. Um, so, like I said, that tag in particular, you don't have to be right on top of the day as to when the draw um, or when the application process opens. Maybe their rifle tags and and some of those other more coveted tags in South Dakota, you do. But like I said, this tag. They call it a draw, but as far as I know, you are completely guaranteed it. You just apply for it, and it's it's in your mailbox within a week. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So now we talked about hunting buck beds and hunting, uh, you know, these the edge of ridges or cattail marshes and whatnot. When you went out to uh, South Dakota and you said we we were gonna we were thinking we were gonna do a running gun type you know, tree stand hunt that didn't work out. So how did you use all these principles that we just discussed early on in this podcast and implement them into this specific hunt, especially an early season hunt? Sure. So the thing is we knew of some absolute definite bedding areas, um, bedding areas, whether they were using them because of the way the topography lied or thick, you know, thick spots, um, with, with like a river going through. So automatically in my head, I'm thinking topography, thinking back to where I've hunted Missouri and thinking that these deer are going to use this, you know, it's almost bulletproof that these deer are going to use this wind based off a certain, you know, or use the topography based off certain winds. Um, and I found that to be 100% the case, um, whether those deer were, were in topography or down in these flat bottom willow thickets, those deer were used to using the wind. And so in my head, I knew of a couple bedding areas, so I said, on this wind, I would assume that these deer would be using these beds, and it was almost 100% the case. Like I said, a lot of consistency in hill country. So it ended up being a spot and stock hunt, but knowing and, and figuring out where these deer were bedding, because like I said, I did go there twice now uh, throughout the year, so I really knew the second time. Um, but knowing those bedding areas and kind of assuming what they, what winds they'd be using them on was a huge tactic that we use. And it, for the most part, we were pretty consistent with getting on deer. Right. So basically it was the same principle, but just hunting from the ground. Absolutely. Okay. Now, how were you comfortable doing that? Because I feel like obvious, obviously having a tree stand has its advantage from a site standpoint right you're able to see a long ways and 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 look but when you're from the ground especially if you're hunting out of what you call a cedar thicket it seems like your vision would be obstructed and you wouldn't be able to see these deer coming into this bedding area absolutely so what what ended up happening is we spent the first couple days just trying to figure it out and pretty soon we got on the tallest points that we could um there were cedar thickets 
but you you would see runways down in i mean it was all big ridges so you get on the top of these ridges and it's sporadic cedar thickets and pretty soon consistently over a course of a couple of days they're always using this ridge always using this ridge always using this, this ridge coming out of out of out of a certain bedding area so well, I definitely felt out of my element thinking that we we're going into a complete running gun hunt and end up being a spot and stock hunt. I was I was able to take you know a lot of the stuff that I, I use in hill country, especially uh, like in Missouri, and I was able to um, you know use it in this situation. Thankfully, gotcha. So, what were the deer doing out there? What was their what was their daily routine that you saw? The, so there was this huge, huge, uh, I'd say 200 acre willow thicket down in the bottoms. Uh, in, in this bottom, there's a, a good sized creek river that runs through it. And there was a pinch point where, um, so I'm trying to find a good way to explain this. So we're on top of this ridge looking down, down into this ridge. And as I look down this ridge, there's a cedar thicket. And then parallel with this ridge, there's, a, there's a, this river, a creek. And on the other side of that, is this willow thicket. Well, that river pinches down at one point and gets really close to the ridge that we're on at the base of it. And so we went and kind of scouted a little bit down there and noticed that the river got really, um, it was, it it was shallow there and it really, um, it narrowed down. They could cross there. So we automatically knew that that was going to be a little transition point of a little bit of a pinch. And sure enough, they would almost come up the exact same ridge. I mean, day after day after day. So they were going from this um, this big willow thicket crossing this river up the ridges to feed out out kind of in the uh, in among the, the cedar thickets and on a lot of the grasslands, I guess you could say. What were they eating? Honestly, it just seemed like they were browsing on whatever native vegetation there was for the most part. I mean, the thing that they definitely do out there is they travel a lot more. I mean, they, they, they put on a lot more miles. It just seemed like whatever the grasses were, the native vegetation, that they would just seem to be kind of browsing on that as, as they were going from point A to point B. Gotcha. What was the, uh, like, how, how far? Miles? Or were they betting in the same spots every day? Because when a deer travels a long ways every day, Yep. I wouldn't I would assume that they're not using the same bedding areas every day. In a perfect world, what if I if I could assume exactly what they were doing, there was two bedding areas and they were bouncing back and forth. And between those two bedding areas, I would say that honestly, it was big country where we could see a ways. Those those two spots could have been I would say a mile to a mile and a half apart. And they'd move across this open the open, you know, the open country, bouncing back and forth. And in, in a perfect world, I'd say they're going to one one day and returning back to the other the next and feeding in between. Gotcha. So that doesn't sound too bad because I I feel like on some of the farms that I hunt, it's it's not a full mile, but it's close to a mile on an early season travel pattern. Sure. You know? Yeah, and I, I mean, I definitely think that some of the location it could have been even farther too. I mean, it just seemed like they definitely moved a lot, a lot more than what a deer, you know, in Wisconsin would. If 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 they move a hundred yards before dark, you're lucky sometimes, you know. Gotcha. And this was river bottom ground, right? Yeah, this was all river bottom ground. Okay. So did the river almost act as a barrier to where it kept them funneled into a certain side of the, uh, you know, 
you could almost use that to your benefit. Like, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. It, it came down to basically the one spot that they would cross is where it got close to the base of this ridge. It pinched down. So it was definitely a barrier, but at the same point, if they were going to cross and you could see them on one side or the other, you almost knew where to get your butt to so that you could cut them off. Right. How much scouting went into finding that location? We, we bumped into it pretty pretty uh, early into the trip. I mean, it, it, and that's the thing. It was just we, we realized after the whole run and gun thing wasn't going to work, we had to put miles on. We ended up putting 30 miles on in three days, walking, 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 and figuring it out. So um, as far as days go, sure, it, it, it didn't take long, but we put on a lot of miles in the time being. Gotcha. Gotcha. So you actually scouted for three or four days before you actually found the location to start hunting? And, and it was about, I would say, a good day and a half to two days is all we had doing the uh, the spot and stock thing. And I would say we had about, um, if, if I were to have a, a rifle with me, I would have said I would have been able to shoot anywhere between eight and ten nice Pope and Young bucks, honestly. Oh, nice. But but, but getting getting in, in range with a bow in that type of country is a whole other ball game. Right. So, I mean, as you started to pinpoint where these deer were coming in and coming out of and bouncing between these two bedding areas, what were you, what were you like, how were you making adjustments every day to put yourself in bow range? Trying to play the wind and getting closer to those two, there was two pinch points that that always seemed like if they're going from point A to point B, they'd always cross within one spot within 20 yards. Um, and we figured it out too late, honestly. Um, and the same thing with the other spot, they crossed it. Um, it was about a 40, 50 yard fence gap that they would pretty much always pass through. Um, and we ended up, the nice thing was at that point, they were all still in bachelor groups. So when we ended up going back there, um, I actually killed my deer in Missouri. And then we went back there towards the rut. Um, those deer weren't in bachelor groups as much and, and, and they were kind of sporadic, um, or they weren't in bachelor groups at all really, but they were more sporadic just chasing does. So it wasn't quite as easy as our early season hunt was, but, um, yeah. Okay. Okay. So I bet you're really looking forward to this upcoming year heading back there. I, absolutely. I mean, I think it would be, you never know, things change, but it's pretty low pressure where we were at, but I, I, I almost could guarantee that we should have at least have some opportunities at some good bucks i mean that if i if uh, if i had to you know put all my eggs back in one basket again i would say that south dakota should be should be a guarantee but we all know that that right hunting's never a guarantee so we'll we'll just see i guess all right so after after south dakota and your close call i mean you hit you basically put yourself into in position and let the arrow fly but the shot just was a little low Sounds yeah, like. and I, I thought I heart shot him, and I had good blood, um, penetration all the way up until about six inches left of the arrow, and he just never bedded. He never stopped. It, it just must have just been right underneath the heart, kind of in that, that little bit of a dead zone right under there. Yeah, brisket. Yeah. Um, so you followed blood for a while, and, and uh, what did it do, just dry up, or did it he, get out he, of public he, ground? He, he blew clots uh, probably three, four times. And it would look real good, look real good, and all of a sudden we just started started losing it, and finally it was just like somebody turned off the spigot. All of a sudden it was gone, and we sat for hours on end in that in that final location and followed deer trails every direction, just could never pick anything up. And when we, this was like I said, the first week of September, we went out there and grid searched in October again, hoping that you know I could at least find you know 
find maybe the what was left of them and just figure out what happened, but we yeah. never could. Yeah. And the well, thing was, it, we, it was in that 200-acre willow thicket. I mean, a willow thicket that you can't see 10 yards in and right. 200 acres of it. So it was really hard. Right. So there's a good chance that uh, he's probably walking around there right now. I sure hope so. And maybe we'll get some redemption this coming year. Right. Well, that happens. That happens. Definitely. Uh, all right. So after South Dakota this last year, where did you go? That was just back to Wisconsin. Had a good encounter with one of one of the bucks I was uh, was uh, was hunting and uh, got him at 17 yards. Shot him quartering quartering away right right below my stand, 17 yards. And I shoot a a bow that shoots about a 355 IBO. Obviously, my draw length is is not 30 inches, it's 29 and a half. But it's 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 winging an arrow, and I'm shooting deep six FMJs, hard hitting arrow. But I was shooting the Rage broadheads, and I had. A, I mean, a malfunction where the broadhead, it seemed like it just skipped right down the rib cage. And I never did recover that deer either. Ugh. Yeah, and I ended up switching to the uh, to a fixed blade, the Wasp drone. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I loved what, what happened with that with my deer in Illinois. But, yeah, it was it was 17 yards, quartering away. I, I love a quartering away shot. It gives you the most chance at the most, you know, vitals. And it just didn't, it didn't work out. It looked off from the second I hit him, and I – yeah, you always kind of second thinking. Maybe okay, maybe I'm good. Maybe I'm good. Well, it just it never worked out. The neighbor the same night, the neighbor was sitting about three quarters of a mile away. He saw that deer and he said he was still booking it and he looked just fine. Okay, I I, I have to say something. Sure. And that is that's not the first time I have heard that same exact uh, scenario play out with a mechanical broadhead <laughs> and I, I i don't want to bash brands right but sure. specifically with a rage where yeah. it was a quartering away shot they yep. hit it somewhere in the rib cage you know if it would have went straight through they would have double lunged it right right blow it out the backside but Definitely. it hit it hit the rib cage and it just didn't go through the rib cage deflected out and, and it actually went in between the ribs and the and the skin right right and the hide and then came out at the front shoulder yeah, and, and it happened more than once to me over the course. And it's not like I shot Rage for one year. I stuck with Rage, and I, I killed a lot of deer with them. But this happened three times probably. It was on does in prior you know occurrences, but th that was the final straw for me. Right. And that particular reason in itself is why – and not, not – I shouldn't say your scenario, but mechanical broadheads in general to where I honestly – don't know if I can ever talk myself into shooting a mechanical broadhead again. When they're great, they're great. And when, you know, when this stuff happens, they're the worst thing ever. I mean, I've, I've shot deer far back, you know, hit them, hit them in the guts. And I, I, I don't love that shot, but with a mechanical broadhead and really any broadhead, but what I have a little more confidence in that mechanical broadhead. When I put a two inch gash on each side of him, I say that deer's dead. All I got to do is find him. Yeah. Um, and, and most times that with the case with a fixed blade, that is too. I just have a little bit more conf confidence in those farther back shots with a, with a mechanical, but, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's a toss up. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I'm sticking with the fixed blades. I can say that much. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, rage sells millions of broadheads probably sure. throughout uh, a year. And, and when they hear, when you hear one bad thing about, a broadhead malfunctioning, you know, there's, you know, 1% failure rate or sure. less than 1% failure rate on, on 
let's I don't even know how to, what math I would need to start doing to to play this all out but their their failure rate is not so much that they're you know you know one out of every 10 broadheads is not opening right right, right. That, that that'd be 10% but one out of every 100 broadheads is not opening so they wouldn't be in business if that was the case. No, exactly. And I mean, like I said, I've had them work great, but you, you tend to remember the times they didn't work great a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. And that, my friends, is why I feel like I'll be sticking to a fixed blade for, uh, you know, for, I guess, the near future anyway. Exactly. And, and, and you know, I'm, to attest to it, at, at that point, I was I still had a couple of them left in my quiver. And when I went to Missouri, I had a deer quartering away again, but he was quartering away far enough, I could slip it behind the ribs. And it worked out great. And it the way you explained the shot on your buck this year, it, it, it was it seems very, very similar to what I did with with the rage. And it worked great. So it's just if, if you can stay away from those ribs, I think you're, you're, you'll be just fine. But you don't get that choice in the tree stand. You know, right. I mean, you got to take what's given to you. <laughs> I wish you could say, excuse me, dear. Would you mind turning broadside so I can shoot you? <laughs> <laughs> That's about it. I wish. Oh, uh, yeah. So, again, you go and you have kind of a, oh, man, just like a really shitty experience in Wisconsin. And you don't you don't kill the deer that you're after. And, and to make it worse, an even bigger hit lister buck came in 15 minutes later. But in my head, I said, nope. I mean, you can't take that shot knowing that you put an arrow in another deer. So I let that one go at 15 yards. Jeez, man, that's tough. Yep. You know, that's a good thing, though. I mean, I know I, I don't want to say I know a lot of guys, but I'm assuming you shoot, a, you shoot a deer. You don't know if it's dead yet or not because you haven't tracked it. But sure. a giant walks in and, you know, that's like this huge ethical debate. Internal it's a hard debate. one. Right. And I'd, I'd be lying to you if it was easy, if I, if I told you it was easy for me to just sit back and let that deer walk by. But in the end, it was the right thing to do. I'm glad I did it looking back on it because I didn't know what happened with that other deer, but it, it's a tough situation to be in. That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So you have two really crappy experiences. What was your mindset last year at the, or this past season after those two things had happened? Absolutely down. I mean, it, it was one of my last hot, you know, hot times to be hunting in Wisconsin, you know, coming up to the rut because I knew I was going to be um, back in Missouri um, in a couple of days and then South Dakota after that. So it was kind of like, well, I just, you know, blew everything in Wisconsin here. And to make matters worse, I have nothing, you know, great. I've, I don't have any real big mature deer on camera in Missouri because I have a, uh, a cell cam down there. But I mean, little did I know that turned around real quick when when a four plus year old buck that I've never had on camera before, a big 11 pointer walked in front of me in Missouri. And well, then, then the roller coaster was back on its way up, I guess you could say. Yeah. So let me see here. I think, did you send me a picture? I want to open it up real quick. Yeah. So the last buck that I would have sent you was the Illinois buck. They call him the cactus buck. He was kind of a, more of a management deer. He was a little bit scurry, but um, a cool deer nonetheless. But then the bigger, um, I might've sent you a picture of, of him hanging, um, from a tree and yeah, yeah. then I, one of the, uh, yeah. one picture with him gotcha. also. Okay. I'm looking at that right now. Um, and that's okay. He's got the split G2. Yep. Gotcha. Okay. So, so walk us, let me see what time are we at here? Walk us through, um, that particular, cause this, it, you actually, it, this Missouri property, 
Was this a bonus buck? Because you you never seen him before, right? Never knew he existed. Okay. Was this a public ground? This was a, a piece of property that we got access to earlier this spring, just driving around and knocking on doors. Gotcha. Cool. So talk to us a little bit about that hunt real quick. So basically went in, um, we planned this whole property. You could hunt every single, pretty much part of it on, on Southwest, West, Northwest winds. We were, that's a predominant wind in that general area. So we were dead set on it. Well, once you know, we get there and I think it was East Southeast and we had like one spot, me and a buddy, we kind of snuck up into this corner and just, you know, took our chances. Well, I was kind of just, there was luck involved, but at the same time I looked at a top, uh, topographical map and I said, all right, there's this bench here. It's between these ridges. Little did I know there was a really good bedding area right below it, so I, I picked this this uh, this bench out on uh, on the top of the map. Went to it, sure enough, sign up the wazoo. Sat there the first night, um, didn't see much. Decided me and my buddy said we're gonna get that east southeast wind. Let's leave our stands here. Come back in the morning. Well, I saw one deer, and it was the deer I put my hands on. He uh, he crossed um, you know crossed my path at about I'd say 55 yards. Um, and he kept going and of course couldn't find my grunt tube, couldn't find my grunt tube. Well, a couple guys that we know that always hunt Missouri up in Wisconsin, I never rattle. I never rattle at all. It, it seems to scare everything off. Well, I, I brought rattling horns with me. I rattled the horns together and he comes to the base of my tree and I ended up shooting him quartering away. And that was that. Yeah. Isn't it cool? I, I think, I think it's cool to put yourself in the perfect position where you don't need to make any calls to kill a deer because that's kind sure. of, that's kind of a testament to you as a hunter. But Absolutely. I think it's also cool when you can change a deer's mind and whether it's a grunt or a rattle or a snort wheeze and you can get them to stop what they're doing, turn around and come back to where you were at. And it's one thing if you do it with an immature deer, it's it's for you to make it, you know, happen on a deer that you want to take and it's a mature big deer. I mean, it's right. it, my, my heart dropped. I was like, I thought I was watching TV. I couldn't believe it actually worked, you know? And then he, so what was his body language before you were rattled, before you rattled at him? Was he nose to the ground, booking? Nose to the ground, nose to the ground. He He was on a mission looking for something and I don't know if he thought somebody else was fighting over his doe or what. But then he came to pretty much to the to uh, twenty some yards, and he he got downwind to me. I just had no shots at, at that point in the season. It was like October twenty fifth. There's just too many leaves, and I didn't have a great gap. And all of a sudden, he got he knew something wasn't right, and he turned around, went down his back trail, and I, I found a gap on his back trail when he was walking away from me. And that's the one, like I said, slipped it behind the ribs, and it, it poked right back out the the offside shoulder. So it worked out then. Wow, that's awesome. Absolutely, and. Uh, and just was how many days into the hunt was that first morning so i got there the night before <laughs> i tell you what it's fun to hunt but it's also fun when it the job gets done right away and i don't know there's a little bit of a relief to the uh, absolutely i mean you know that you're not going down swinging throughout the entire year you got something to show for right. all the time you put in absolutely i know what you're saying especially for you when you had two bad hits Right. Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, I've had a couple over the course of the years, but t two in one year, it's just like you, you really start questioning yourself. I'm, I'm out there practicing. I'm shooting long distances so that those short distances should be, you know, money shots. And it's it's it was definitely a step in the right direction because it's easy to get down on yourself and not even want to go hunting after right. screwing up a couple shots like that. Right. So on as far as the strategy on this uh, Missouri buck w was concerned, this was a. 
was this a buck bed method or were you hunting kind of like a, a funnel or a pinch point? It, it was it was a bench between two um, two ridges. If I can see a bench on a topographical map, I always like I like to check them out. Um, and it, this was a bigger property, so it was actually my first time up there. And sure enough, I get to this bench and it had you know fresh fresh rubs and um, this bench where, where it drops back down into the bottom below it, um, you know, this ridge went down pretty far and it was a real thick, nasty face of this ridge. And he was, he was bedding and spending time in there. We found out later on after we had to track him, I mean, he had the whole thing tore up. So it seemed like that was that coming up that bench and, and spending time on that bench was kind of his way out of the bottom. And I just happened to be set up perfectly on, on the sign um, that morning. Wow. I love it when it plays out like that, man. I'd like to I mean there was definitely a lot of luck involved but at the same time spending time looking at maps it was it was a combination of knowing what to do and and luck too so absolutely all right so after Missouri then what we went straight back to South Dakota and like I said it was just all everything was thrown up in the air because it was the rut they weren't nearly as uh they weren't nearly as predictable and and I got to pull back on one but it wasn't a clean it wasn't a clear shot so I, I didn't take the shot and that that's pretty much the story of South Dakota that time it was it was pretty it was pretty slow for the rut actually it was a lot better early season hunt so out there it was the rut what what uh, time frame was that like second week in November I shot my no it would have been because their second about the tenth is their gun season I believe so we were there I think the well, the first week in November, I, had to, I want to say we stayed up and stayed there until about the 6th or 7th. Okay. So in South Dakota, though, with it being the rut, did you see more deer than the previous trip? The thing that changed, um, a, a big contributing factor is we, we didn't because some of these public access areas, they're privately owned. So there's a lot of cattle out in these spots. We'll also get back to our honey hole second round um, in October, and there's cattle everywhere. So that definitely had a huge damper on, on, on why we didn't see as many deer. So they put the cattle back into some of these areas. Yeah, so they, they weren't there early season, and we go back, and we, they actually, when we were there, they actually herded the cattle up and took them to a different property again. But yeah, the, the cattle was not there early season. They were there when we came back for the rut, and I think that absolutely had something to do with, right. with the lack of success on that hunt too. So did you find out where they were going? Like where the deer went, did you get any ideas while you're out there instead of just saying, oh shit, the cattle are here. Did you do any additional scouting to try to locate where they relocated to? Down in that willow thicket that I talked about previously, I ended up, we, we did, we had the stands for running gun hunts because we knew there was a couple opportunities. If we want to get down in these willows, there's trees back in there. So let's try it. And those deer, the way they create buck beds and buck net, it's a nest in those willow thickets. And I've got, I got within about 10 feet walking to a location I was trying to get to. I got within about 10 feet of a 140 inch deer, probably, um, probably 18, 19, 20 wide, um, and uh, so they were still using that willow thicket because the, the, the cattle couldn't cross the river to, to get to the other side where this willow thicket was. Gotcha. And so they were, were they across the river and staying over there or were they crossing the river back and forth every day? They would cross it a little bit, but they wouldn't, they weren't traveling to, to bedding area number two. They weren't going a mile you know, to that second bedding area, they were, they would come out of the bottom and they would kind of hang around on that ridge. And then if there was any sort of of pressure from the cattle, they would, they would pretty much go back into the willows and it was, it's almost impossible to hunt that. Yeah. I gotcha. All right. So you go back to South Dakota, it's chaos, you know, chaos and cattle. What, uh, what happened after that? 
ended up, um, I went down to Missouri just for a muzzleloader hunt, take my little nephew down there as a birthday present. It was just, you know, kind of a good family time, nothing too crazy. Saw a couple nice bucks, but nothing crazy. And then after that, the last week of season, headed down to Illinois and got to shoot the buck that, like I said, we call the cactus buck. Gotcha. So the cactus buck uh, in Illinois, This was this a late season archery hunt? Yep. Okay. So, and that's the, the deformed one? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And like I said, my buddy, um, uh, Doug Castreva, he owns horny buck seed. Um, he actually set this hunt up, um, and, and we kind of went down there. So I didn't really know what I was getting myself into, but, um, obviously it ended up working out for the best. It was really cool. It, it was good, good, you know, late season food. And it, it was pretty much your typical late season hunt the way it worked out. So what were they, where were they betting kind of, what were they going to? I mean, when I think the perfect late season hunt, I think I'm sitting on a food a food source or a staging area maybe before a big ag field and and basically just watching a parade of deer come through in cold weather. And, and that's pretty much what it was. I mean, it, 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 I didn't even have to get in a staging area. I pretty much waited for them on the food source. Um, and they were betting, you know, on the backside of this one big south-facing ridge. They're coming over the top of it. Um, through it was it was a thick ridge of like saplings and stuff and brush. They'd come over it and they'd come feed back down to the bottom where where the food was. And I mean, it was it was one of those things. That it almost seemed like a TV show the way it worked out. I ended up watching this buck. Um, he came in at 69 yards. I waited him waited for a little bit. Got the 52. Waited for a little bit. Finally got the 38 yards. Gave me a broadside shot and I hit him uh, hit him with that wasp drone a little bit far back. Clipped the liver and had tremendous blood. I mean, it was one of those things when I hit him a little bit far back. It was like, man, do I wish I was shooting rage right now? You know, yeah. um, gave the deer some time and I was absolutely pleased with the blood trail um, of that wasp drone. I mean, considering it's small diameter. So that, that's kind of how that all went down. It, it was, it was a really cool experience to actually get on a deer, uh, you know, a, a deer that you're looking to go after that late in the season. I mean, you got to have the food and it, it just, it worked out perfect. Yeah. So how old was this buck? Four and a half. Four and a half. Okay. Yep. Four and a half. And there was some deer prior to, to him that had the same bad genetics. And it was one of those deer that, you know, everybody wanted taken out. So thankfully he stepped out. Gotcha. Was he was he that way his whole life, or did he get wounded and then grow the bad side? He he was like that, you know, since the beginning. A lot of times, like you said, yeah, when they when they got that that screwed up side like that, you assume maybe they got hurt in that that opposite side, maybe back end or, or whatever the case is. But no, this deer was always screwed up from from you know from go. Gotcha. Well, it sounds like you're you're rebounded after uh, two two bad shots, though. Right. Absolutely. It ended on a high note. That's for sure. Awesome, man. Awesome, man. So what's on the game plan for 2019? Um, honestly, just just uh, just started up a, a whitetail land management business. Um, something we've been doing for a little bit of time, you know, going to people's properties and and giving the consultation type deal. Um, going in there and creating a plan um, for for, you know, creating better habitat to improve, you know, quality quality of deer that you're seeing and, and higher deer numbers, things of those sorts. Um, some of the things that I've learned along the way and spent a little bit time with, with certain wildlife biologists and, and, you know, owners of companies and learned a lot of things from. And so I'm going to transition that into a business, which I, I just recent, recently law, um, launched. And that's uh, the name of it is plain and simple. It's uh, Whitetail Land Management Services. So you, can, you guys can check that stuff out. But other than that, I'm looking forward to getting back out in the field myself and get some, getting some shed hunting in down in Missouri in our honey holes and back over in Illinois. So got a little bit planned and I'm, I'm excited to, to see where things take us. What about, uh, are you heading back to South Dakota this year? 
Absolutely. I'll be there first week of September and, and hopefully me and you will be back in touch and we got a success story because like I said, I think early season I really got got their their you know, their uh their their whole A to B figured out. I think I know where to pick them off in between. Awesome. Well my friend, thanks for hopping back on and good luck this upcoming season. Appreciate it. Good luck to you too, Dan. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, another podcast in the books. Huge shout out to Brett for hopping back on the podcast and chit-chatting with us today. Really appreciate that. Huge shout out to all the partners of this podcast. Deer Lab, Exodus, Lone Wolf, Ripcord, Ozonics, Hunter Safety Systems, Prime Archery, and Ripcord Arrow Rest. Man, please go out and support the companies that support this podcast because uh, they support this podcast. It's a circle, right? They give the love to me. I give the love to you. Now you should go back and give the love to those companies, man. Really appreciate that. Other than that, go check out all the social media platforms, right? Instagram, Facebook, and uh, share your story with me. Uh, I love it when you guys reach out to me and uh, share pictures with me. And who knows, I might even get you on the podcast. So, uh, you know, keep bugging me with all that stuff. I really appreciate that. Lastly, make sure you are subscribing to all of the content coming out of the Sportsman's Nation, specifically the Nine Finger Chronicles. Um, all these all these podcasts now have their own standalone feed that you can subscribe to, along with the network feeds as well if you want all the information. So just to keep, a, keep an eye out for that. And, man, what else? I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think. Leave a review. Go to iTunes or wherever you download your podcast. Leave a review. And lastly... I know the seasons are pretty much over for most of the country, but if by chance you are still hunting, please wear your damn safety harness. We'll see you on Friday.